Listener supported. WNYC Studios. I think when I got cancer, suddenly you don't feel that your life is in front of you in the same way anymore. You feel like, you know, you now are on the clock. And, you know, the fantasy is that you could um, do it a different way experience something else it's almost like i i i had a midlife crisis but instead of it being brought on by middle age it was brought on by illness this is death sex and money the show from wnyc about the things we think about a lot and need to talk about more i'm anna sale Claudia Rankin does not flinch from direct conversations, in her personal life and in her poems and writing. In her latest book, Just Us, Claudia goes right at the tensions and often unspoken dynamics that she experiences as a Black woman with white people, her white husband, her white friends and colleagues, and a white stranger she encountered at an airport a few years ago. A man comes up to me in the Southwest line because they line you up by numbers. And he says to me, you know, I just need to know your number because I don't want to cut you off. I don't want to get in front of you. Um, And I say, I'm number 10. He says, okay, I'm number eight. So he gets in front of me and he says to me, I love airplanes because it's the one time I can just relax and not have to listen to the news. I can't stand the news these days. And um, and I said to him, well, you shouldn't have voted for him. Oh, you did. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> how how did you know? Like, what was your read on him? What did you notice about who he was that made you feel like you could say that? Well, one, he, um, 62% of white men who voted, voted for Trump. And, um, and I'm, you know, often I'm traveling to work. So I'm traveling in business class or... Um, first class. Um, and I assume, and maybe the assumption is incorrect, but I assume that because many of these men can make the claim that they're, they're making a decision based on economics, (laughs) you know, because often I'll hear I voted for him because of the economy. Um, so I just said, you shouldn't have voted for him. And that man did not speak to me again. He said, he did say to me, it's not just him. Oh, that so you were right. Response. So I, I assume he didn't say, I didn't vote for him. He said, it's not just him. And that was the end of our conversation. It wasn't, it didn't feel confrontational. That was what was funny. Oh. I thought I was making a joke. <laughs> 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 I mean, I, With the assumption that he had voted for him, I still thought I was making a joke because we were in a world where um, Trump's shenanigans were, you know, were the butt of jokes everywhere at the time. Well, to me, it's just, I I just immediately, like white people and white men in particular 
are very uncomfortable with the idea that they can be profiled or that something about them can be understood based on what Mm -hmm. you can observe from the outside. Um, Mm -hmm. You really didn't know he wasn't going to like that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, you know, I, it, it, people have said to me, well, what, what else could you have said? And I could have said, um, why is that? You know, why don't you um, like the news? But I, I think every once in a while I do sort of just state a thing. And often that does end the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, you know, I, I, I do it rarely. And um, so it's more, I've, I've always been more interested in how do you keep the conversation going? How do you keep it open? And, and one way to do that is when you feel the thing might be a falsehood or it might be partial, only partially true, is to ask it back as a question. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I identify with, as an interviewer, like the, the idea of like expressing, um, just wanting to deepen your understanding by asking a question and then the next question and then the next question. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have sort of sometimes thought for myself, Am I, um, does it give me a bit of a pass to not stand for something if I'm just like, oh, in- interesting that you think that. What about that? Like, do you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the mode of conversation as a way of just like investigating, but not ever forcing myself to come down in a way that might alienate the person I'm talking to. Well, I always manage to alienate anyway, so I don't know. <laughs> So I think I think you must be better at it than me. But um, I, because I, I think the questions when I am asking them, they still are on the road somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, I am asking from the position of curiosity based on things that I already know or based on what I suspect might be um, an erasure. Claudia is 57. She was born in Kingston, Jamaica, and moved to the U.S. when she was a kid. Her parents and relatives came for nursing jobs in New York City. I don't have many memories of growing up in Jamaica. I have a single memory, um, which is going to school with my cousin and her explaining to me that most people have to go to school. So maybe there was some reluctance about going to school. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And that's really my only memory. My next memory is being on a plane coming to the United States um, at the age of six. Did your family talk about that move as a choice to leave Jamaica or a choice to come to the U.S.? I think it was a choice to come to the U.S. There was never really a sense that we were fleeing Jamaica. And um, I think throughout my childhood, there was, you know, my parents had visits back home. Uh, There was family there. They saw themselves as Jamaicans. But I grew up as their child in America and um, saw myself as Jamaican-American. Growing up in the Bronx in the 1970s, Claudia was mostly around white people, in her neighborhood and at the Catholic school she went to. 
my mother had always said to me, don't trust white people. You know, she said that to us as children. And, and so I just remember being in school and having moments where the teachers would act in ways that were um, unethical, I think, <laughs> you know, um, just moody and violent. It was back when you were allowed to hit children and, you know, they didn't like how you sang a song or they thought a child was mocking them and they would just punch them. You know, that, that, was, that was Catholic school in the 70s. And um, I remember becoming very vigilant, watching them, thinking about um, what might make them angry, um, keeping my distance, not speaking a lot. Hmm. It's funny. I think of the word vigilant as sort of like, um, I first think of it as what you need to do to protect yourself. Uh, and you're describing it as a vigilance to not upset them. Yeah, and also protect myself. Yeah, <laughs> which goes goes um, hand in hand. Yeah, when someone's mood might alter your ability to move. When your mom said, "Don't trust white people," in what context would she say that? I, I it's hard to remember the context. I remember her saying it. I know she she was not very open to us going to other people's homes, for example. We were the only black family on our street, and we had had um, moments where my brother, I think my brother leaned against somebody's car, and um, the person came out and yelled at him, told him to get off the car, get away from his car. And, you know, we were just talking, so it was a thing to lean against. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, racial appetites were used. And I can't remember if it was more than words that happened on that occasion. And some white people actually um, taking up for him or coming over and saying, um, you know, this is outrageous, this, you know? Yeah. So I don't know how far it went, but, but it, I think she, she was always weary that there was going to be some kind of incident. Um, and so she tended to, to keep to herself. Do you have a sense of how old your brother was and how old you were when that happened? Um, I think probably could have been like 10 and 15. Your 10-year-old girl, he's a 15-year-old boy. Right. Um, and you say you were the only Black family on your block. Who were the rest of the families? I would say um, everyone was white, maybe of Italian descent or Jewish descent. There was one family from Puerto Rico. I think we became the Jamaican family when we visited other Jamaicans. My cousins lived in Brooklyn. And um, perhaps one Sunday a month, we would go to their house in Brooklyn. And, and they were Jamaican. And then the world was Jamaica. The food, the culture, the music. Um, but I think on that street, <laughs> we were the Black family. Yeah. 
Claudia went to Williams College in Massachusetts, where she graduated in 1986, and came back to New York for an MFA in poetry at Columbia. One of her first jobs out of grad school was teaching at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, which was where she met her husband John, a photographer and filmmaker. It was the mid-90s, and while their conversations were lively and deeply intellectual, Claudia did not expect that they'd get married. What impressed me about him at the time was he was very involved in social justice issues. And I had not had much involvement in that. Um, I had opinions, but not actual involvement. And he was doing things like um, the Big Brother, Little Brother program, you know, working with inner city youth, um, driving mothers to the prisons to visit their sons, things like that. And so he opened up a whole new world for me. So he taught you about structural inequities that you hadn't yeah. sort of considered. Exactly. When I, when I met him, I wasn't really thinking about dating him. I, but I was interested in the things that he was interested in. And I, I remember saying to a friend, I met this guy and he would make somebody a really good husband. Oh. <laughs> but not me. Interesting. And how long, how long did that take to unfold before you realized it could be you? Um, probably a couple of years. About two years. When you think back on um, sort of those conversations that you were having about in early when you're getting to know each other about the the ways in which to engage with social justice, um, do you think back and like, did you have a language to talk about whiteness with him? Um, I think we talked more about social injustice as a structural dynamic. But I don't think we were talking specifically about whiteness, though we did have interactions with the police where we would be driving somewhere and the police would pull him over and he would say, I never used to get pulled over. It must be you. And, mm. and it was it was me, you know, um, the police would ask him questions like, how do you know her? Wow. And. Um, things like that. So you all were trying to have sort of an intellectual conversation about structures and then moving around in the world. How personal this is, is sort of foisted on you all. Yeah. And those were moments um, that were kind of interesting because they were both kind of, they were tense moments in that one is rage filled in a way but then there were also moments of levity because we knew how to read the moment you know you're both tense and making jokes um but clearly the imper i'm talking about things that have happened years ago and i still can feel my body getting tense <laughs> you know, yeah like, um, so it, so I, I think 
recognition of what it meant for him to be a white male, for me to be a black woman, was always in discussion, even if it wasn't the point of the discussion, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like with the levity that it became when you were able to pull away and leave the police officers behind and you could look at each other and comment on the absurdity of it, like even though it was an encounter that underscored your difference, you were allied in your read on what had happened. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And and I think the intimacy came from um, a recognition of the same reality. Uh-huh. What, has there been an argument where you say something like, you're being a white guy right now? Or what you're saying is so clearly because you're a white guy? Like, does it come up in moments of tension between you two? Well, we've had, we've had um, situations where, you know, I might say you're only doing that because you're a white guy and, and he'll say, well, you do the same thing. And I say, I might do the same thing, but I don't have the same reception. (laughs) (laughs) Coming up, another challenge in Claudia and John's marriage, a cancer diagnosis. I think my initial reaction to the cancer diagnosis and the treatment was um, to want to flee to flee him, to, to just change up things. So at that point, I said to my husband, you know, maybe we've been together for 25 years. Maybe we could just um, split and, and do different things. As you know, our show is about the things we think about a lot and need to talk about more. In my upcoming book, Let's Talk About Hard Things, I focus on five big topics of conversations that can be tough. Death, sex, money, family, and identity. I'm excited to celebrate the book's release on May 4th with you and to hear how the stories in it about hard conversations I and others have had compare with what you've experienced. So beginning right now, we are collecting stories about your hardest conversations. Is there one conversation that really stands out in your mind as one that was really hard to start or to stick with? Tell us the story of that conversation. How did it start? How did it end? What changed because you had that hard conversation? Maybe it was learning a family secret or apologizing to someone about a terrible mistake you'd made. Or maybe it was when you had to give your kid the sex talk. The thing about difficult conversations is they're necessary. They can also be a relief and they can make our lives better. So tell us about the hardest conversation you've ever had. Write an email or record a voice memo and send it to us at deathsexmoney at wnyc.org. Let's share our stories about hard conversations because I'm telling you, Hearing how others talk about hard things sometimes makes them feel a little less hard. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. 
Claudia Rankin went through breast cancer treatment when she was in her early 50s, and she said it made her reevaluate a lot, including her relationship with her husband. They have a daughter and had been together for more than two decades. They decided to see a couple's counselor. She asked both of us the question, what was the worst thing the other person had said to us? And I was surprised when he said that the worst thing I had said was that because he was a white guy in America in his 50s and pretty good looking, he could just get another wife. You know, like this is a handmaiden's tale. <laughs> and that's when she said um, what she said, which was, you know, the fact of the matter isn't the emotion of the matter. <laughs> um, so, but what, you know, and, and obviously she made a lot of sense and, and, and it was a thing to get through. But I was always surprised that that was the worst thing I could have said to him, that he's a white guy in America. Why did that surprise you? Like when he said that, can you tell me what, like what was surprising to you that that was so hurtful to him? Well, because it was the the matter of the fact. Like I was surprised because it seemed like a no-brainer to me. I mean, that's just true. And we were surrounded by friends who had gotten divorced and remarried, um, mostly the men, while the women were still single. You think you're saying something like the sky is blue when you said that? Exactly. Uh-huh. And how did he hear it? Well, I think it was one of the few times where his race was part of the equation of the dynamic. But I, I think that I do think that being named white is um, is still hurtful to white people, and I don't, and I guess I really don't understand why, because they are white, and um, and he is a man. Maybe if I had said as a man, but I think I think it was the white man, the. Um, the reduction of him to that was what hurt him. Yeah. I think that there's something, uh, I mean, I, I think, I think you know why white people don't like to be called white. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you why. <laughs> but, um, I mean, to me, it's like, it's, uh, to be called a white woman as opposed to a woman is it's a it's um it's it's to me I hear it as like a, a, an observation of my willful participation in something that I want to pretend that I'm not participating in. Exactly, but it's the pretend that I object to in a way. You know, I I feel like there there are these realities in the same way that being a black woman is my position in this society. And it comes with many things, not all of them bad and not all of them good. Mm -hmm. I don't have a choice to lose it. And I guess white people do have a choice to lose the uh, modifier white 
and and gain, um, be in the world as just people. And if that's the objective, that's what they have been told they own. They have the ownership of the the category of people. Yeah. I mean, I think pretend when you say like that they have that choice. Obviously, we, I don't have a choice about how I'm how I move through the world. Yeah. I move through the world as a white woman, but but it, to have that named um, is uncomfortable. Um, do you regret saying it because it hurt him, or do you think it was a true thing that was okay to say? I think at the time I said what I the things I needed to say. Um, would I say it now? No. But I'm also not in the same space psychologically mm-hmm. um, that I was in then. I think it allowed us to have some conversations we wouldn't have had otherwise. Mm-hmm. I, you know, it's it, it's an interesting thing because I think that moment in our marriage, as difficult as it was, ended up changing. Um, our trajectory since then. So if I hadn't had my little meltdown. Oh, don't say it like, that's interesting. You're diminishing it. All right. So I won't say that. (laughs) (laughs) But if I hadn't, if we hadn't had that moment of confrontation, um, I think we wouldn't have been able to get to other, other levels of intimacy and communication and understanding about where we were in our lives Mm -hmm. and what we needed from each other. And, and in many ways, I feel like we have a more grown up marriage now than Mm -hmm. we did um, before then. And suddenly a lot of things were laid bare, including um, the possibility of loss and, and, and death and the finality of um, that that remains present in our in our marriage now. I mean, you know, once you enter into the world of cancer, there's a way in which you never leave it. Mm-hmm. Why did you end up staying in the marriage? It wasn't ever really um, a real desire. Mm. <laughs> it was a reaction. Mm. Um. It was a reaction to to feeling at an end, um, but then it wasn't an end. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I think that's why they tell you don't make decisions when <laughs> you have when you have major life traumas. Yeah, you decided to move across the country and stay in the marriage. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Something had to move, so yeah. we moved. Um, if it's not too personal, how is your how is your health now? Um, hopefully fine. Knock on wood. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I you know I feel very lucky. While in treatment, Claudia was working on what became her book Citizen. Over the next few years, she won a MacArthur Genius Grant and took a professor position at Yale. Her career was taking off. But she also told me that having the time to write and slow down while in treatment allowed her to reconsider what she wanted to do with her life. I think in part because of the cancer, I was willing to 
make decisions I might not have made before. Um, up until then, the world is just asking you to do X and do Y, and and you do it. But if somebody calls you up and you're like, you know, I'm in chemo, they're like, okay, take it, bye. <laughs> you you do you, you know. And um, even as a mom, you know, my husband took over taking care of our daughter, and so I really had a period of about a year where where I worked on the book and had treatment and took the dog for a walk. That became my time, and I hadn't had that, I think, ever, in fact. When you say there are some choices I made because of cancer, what 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 do you think of what did you decide to do that you might have avoided or not been willing to do before i ha- i haven't been in any kind of cancer groups with other people with cancer but uh, so i don't know how typical this is but i really had a moment where i just felt like well you know it all could be gone tomorrow so what am i holding on to it it should matter what i do and say and how I live. It should matter to me. So that's what I started doing. I started just saying what I wanted to say and doing what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's created a, a, a kind of um, its own precarity. You know, I, I get all kinds of death threats and, um, and accolades, you know, both on both ends. Have you felt the cost of saying what you want to say um, in more intimate uh, relationships? I presume the death threats are from people you don't know. I've lost some friends, but I I feel like my close group of friends have become closer. And I think we've all... um, We've all... I don't want to say that I gave people license to do anything, but I feel as if in doing that, it has allowed others to do the same. You know, I just feel like our com- my conversations with my friends have gotten deeper and um, and less is left out. Oh, that's interesting. Um, yeah. I mean, people are, People are sort of willing to go there with me and are willing to um, share things that somehow we hadn't shared or talked about before, Um, especially. And and it's not just in white, black situations, but also my friends who are are black, black women friends of mine. um, Latinx friends of mine, there's a way in which we're all more willing to just put it on the table. Um, and so it's, 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 it's also the, t- the sign of the times though, you know, I think my, 
my openness has coincided with a world that has been shown what it's like to be on the edge of a fascist regime that's taken um, white people's racism for granted. Hmm. I'm curious, have you found, did it change your intention about the racial makeup of your group of intimates, like who you wanted to be closest with? Well, we, one of the, one of the things I've loved about our household is that it has always been very diverse and not just racially diverse. It's diverse in terms of, um, um, everything that you can imagine, you know, um, you know, you, you can be at a dinner party at our house and you'll be sitting next to somebody who was in prison for 25 years or, or somebody who is a CEO at a company or somebody who um, just moved here from Sweden or somebody who, um, everybody, everybody's here. That's one of the, the things that I have appreciated in our marriage that, we have both moved in circles um, of all kinds of people all the time. Mm. And, and that's one of the things that makes, um, makes it fun. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what we, we, we're not surrounded by sameness. We have to make a case for the things that we believe. And... Um, and I'm glad my daughter has been able to grow to grow up inside that kind of environment. You have just finished this project where you are having a series of conversations with white people about what they can handle talking about and facing. Um, And you you have this sentence where you say, once I confuse the passage of time with change in the book. And I wonder right now, how much change do you think is happening when it comes to the racial order in America and white people in particular's ability to, to confront it? You know, that's a tough question. On one level, I feel like the sentences have changed. People are able to hear certain things that even five years ago, when I said them, I got people um, either irritated or looking at me like I was a very strange, young, old lady. And now... I feel like I've joined a chorus of people talking about these things and talking about them very publicly. Whether or not those new sentences in our um, discourse will play themselves out in systemic change, real change, 
I don't know. That is Claudia Rankin. Her latest book is Just Us. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. This episode was produced by Afi Yellow Duke. The rest of our team includes Katie Bishop, Emily Botin, Yasmin Khan, and Andrew Dunn. Our intern is Emily Tafour. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Twitter at Anna Sale. The show is at Death, Sex, Money on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you to Jasmine Cuffey in Brooklyn, New York, who is a sustaining member of Death, Sex, and Money. Join Jasmine and support what we do here by going to deathsexmoney.org slash donate. And it's springtime. Maybe you are getting outside a little more with friends than you have been in the last few weeks. Take some inspiration from Claudia and her family with how they've gathered with friends. We created what we call the COVID cabana. Um, we had this um, ten-foot table in the basement, and we put it outside. And um, one night a week, we have friends over, and they sit on the other side, and and then we order in so that nobody's touching anything. Who came up with COVID Cabana? Um, we did. You did. Um, I'm trying yeah. to let you take credit. You're you are the world-renowned wordsmith. <laughs> No, it could have been, um, been my husband. My husband's very good at um, puns and things like that. <laughs> I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC.